eight, birdies, and that a tutored people invariably confound medicine with magic. A plant or root is thought to possess virtue, not only when swallowed in powder or decoction, but when carried in the hand. St. John's word and rowan berries, like the Homeric moly, still make evil charms of none avail, rowan, ash, and red thread keep the devils from their speed, says the Scotch rhyme. Any fanciful resemblance of leaf or flower or root to a portion of the human body, any analogy based on color, will give a plant reputation for magical virtues. This habit of mind survives from the savage condition. The Hottentots are great herbalists, like the Greeks, like the Germans. They expect supernatural aid from plants and roots. Mr. Han, in his Sui Gong, the supreme being of the Koi Koi page 82, gives the following examples, Dapper, in his description of Africa, page 621, tells us, some of them wear round the neck roots, which they find far inland, in rivers, and being on a journey they light them in a fire or chew them, if they must sleep the night out in the field, they believe that these roots keep off the wild animals, the roots they chew are spin out around the spot where they encamp for the night, and in a similar way if they set the roots alight, they blow the smoke and ashes about, believing that the smell will keep the wild animals off. I had often occasion to observe the practice of these superstitious ceremonies, especially when we were in a part of the country where we heard the roaring of the lions, or had the day previously met with the footprints of the kin of the beasts. The cornas also have these roots as safeguards with them. If a commando a warlike expedition goes out, every man will put such roots in his pockets and in the pouch where he keeps his bullets, believing that the arrows or bullets of the enemy have no effect, but that his own bullets will surely kill the enemy, and also before they lie down to sleep, they set these roots alight, and murmur, my grandfather's root, bring sleep on the eyes of the lion and leopard and the hyena, make them blind, that they cannot find us, and cover their noses that they cannot smell us out. Also, if they have carried off large booty, or stolen cattle of the enemy, they light these roots and say, We thank thee, our grandfather's root, that thou hast given us cattle to eat. Let the enemy sleep, and lead him on the wrong track, that he may not follow us until we have safely escaped. Another sort of shrub is called Adiv. Herdsmen, especially, carry pieces of its wood as charms, and if cattle or sheep have gone astray, they burn a piece of it in the fire, that the wild animals may not destroy them, and they believe that the cattle remain safe until they can be found the next morning. Schweinfurt found the same belief in magic herbs and roots among the bongos and niamniams in the heart of Africa. The bongos believe, like the Homeric Greeks, that certain roots ward off the evil influences of spirits, like the German amateurs of the mandrake. They assert that there is no other resource for obtaining communication with spirits except by means of certain roots I-306. Our position is that the English magical potato, the German mandrake, the Greek moly, are all survivals from a condition of mind like that in which the Hottentots still pray to roots. Now that we have brought mandragora and moly into connection with the ordinary magical superstitions of savage peoples, let us see what is made of the subject by another method. Mr. R. Brown, the learned and industrious author of the great Dionysiac myth, has investigated the traditions about the Homeric moly. He first turns to Aryan philology. Many guesses at the etymology of moly have been made. Curtis suggests Greek, akin to Greek, soft. This does not suit Mr. Brown, who, to begin with, is persuaded that the herb is not a magical herb. Sans phrase, like those which the Hottentots use, 
but that the basis of the myth is simply the effect of night upon the world of day. Now, as Moli is a name in use among the gods, Mr. Brown thinks we may fairly examine the hypothesis of a foreign origin of the term. Anyone who holds that certain Greek gods' word are borrowed from abroad, may be allowed to believe that the gods used foreign words, and, as Mr. Brown points out, there are foreign elements in various Homeric names of imported articles, peoples, persons, and so forth. Where, then, is a foreign word like Moli, which might have reached Homer, by a long process of research, Mr. Brown finds his word in ancient Akkadian. From Professor Sace he borrows a reference to Apuleius Barbarus, about whose life nothing is known, and whose date is vague. Apuleius Barbarus may have lived about four centuries after our era, and he says that while Rue was called Moli by the Cappadocians, Rue, like rosemary, and indeed like most herbs, has its magical repute, and if we suppose that Homer's Moli was Rue, there would be some interest in the knowledge. Rue was called herb of grace in English. Holy water was sprinkled with it, and the name is a translation of Homer's Greek. Perhaps rue was used in sprinkling, because in pre-Christian times rue had, by itself, power against sprites and powers of evil. Our ancestors may have thought it as well to combine the old charm of rue and the new Christian potency of holy water. Thus there would be a distinct analogy between Homeric moly and English herb of grace. Euphrasy and rue were employed to purge and purify mortal lives. Pliny is very learned about the magical virtues of rue, just as the stolen potato is sovereign for rheumatism, so rue stolen through that the best, the Samoans think that their most valued vegetables were stolen from heaven by a Samoan visitor, 152a it is remarkable that rue, according to Pliny, is killed by the touch of a woman in the same way as, according to Josephus, the mandrake is tamed. 150 to be these passages prove that the classical peoples had the same extraordinary superstitions about women as the Bushmen and Red Indians. Indeed Pliny 152c describes a magical manner of defending the crops from blight, by aid of women, which is actually practiced in America by the Red Men. 152d here, then, are proofs enough that Rue was magical outside of Cappadocia, but this is not an argument on Mr. Brown's lines. The Cappadocians called Rumoli, what language, he asks, was spoken by the Cappadocians. Professor Sace who knows so many tongues says that we know next to nothing of the language of the Cappadocians, or of the Muscite who lived in the same locality. But where Professor Sace Island the Hittites, if we may say so respectfully, are not very far off. In this case he thinks the Muscite though he admits we know next to nothing about it seem to have spoken a language allied to that of the Cappadocians and Hittites. That is to say, it is not impossible that the language of the Muscai, about which next to nothing is known, may have been allied to that of the Cappadocians, about which we know next to nothing, all that we do know in this case island that 400 years after Christ the dwellers in Cappadocia employed a word moly, which had been Greek for at least 1200 years, but Mr. Brown goes on to quote that one of the languages of which we know next to nothing, Hittite, was probably allied to Proto-Armenian and perhaps Lycian, and was above all not Semitic. In any case the cuneiform mode of writing was used in Cappadocia at an early period, as even Professor Sace declines to give more than a tentative reading of a Cappadocian cuneiform inscription. It seems highly rash to seek in this direction for an interpretation of the Homeric word moly, used in Cappadocia very many centuries after the tablets were scratched, but, 
on the evidence of the Babylonian character of the cuneiform writing on Cappadocian tablets, Mr. Brown establishes a connection between the people of Acadia who probably introduced the cuneiform style and the people of Cappadocia. The connection amounts to this. 1200 years after Homer, the inhabitants of Cappadocia are said to have called Rumoli. At some unknown period, the Acadians appear to have influenced the art of writing in Cappadocia. Apparently Mr. Brown thinks it not too rash to infer that the Cappadocian use of the word moly is not derived from the Greeks, but from the Acadians. Now in Acadian, according to Mr. Brown, mol means star, hence ulu or mula Greek, the mysterious Homeric counter charm to the charms of Kirk. Page 60. Mr. Brown's theory, therefore, is that moly originally meant star, Sirius is the moon. Odysseus is the Sunday and what watches over the solar hero at night when exposed to the hostile lunar power. But the stars, especially the dog star, the true island that Homer's moly, whatever plant he meant by the name, is only one of the magical herbs in which most peoples believe or have believed, like the Scottish Rowan, or like Street John's word, it is potent against evil influences. People have their own simple reasons for believing in these plants and have not needed to bring down their humble, early botany from the clouds and stars, we have to imagine. On the other hand if we follow Mr. Brown, that in some unknown past the Cappadocians turned the Acadian word for a star into a local name of a plant, that this word reached Homer, that the supposed old Acadian myth of the star which watches over the solar hero retained its vitality in Greek, and leaving the star clung to the herb, that Homer used in a Cappadocian myth, and that, Many ages after, the Acadian star name in its perverted sense of rue survived in Cappadocia. This structure of argument is based on tablets which even Professor Sace cannot read, and on possibilities about the alliances of tongues concerning which we know next to nothing, a method which leaves on one side the common, natural, widely diffused beliefs about the magic virtue of herbs beliefs which we have seen at work in Kensington and in Central Africa to hunt for moly among stars and in deciphered Cappadocian inscriptions, seems a dubious method, we have examined it at full length because it is a specimen of an erudite, but, as we think, a mistaken way in folklore, Abhalafi's warnings against the shifting mythical theories based on sciences so new as the lore of Assyria and Acadia are by no means superfluous, Acadian is rapidly become as ready a key to all locks as Arian was a few years ago, Kalevala, O.R., the Finnish national epic. It is difficult to account for the fact that the scientific curiosity which is just now so busy in examining all the monuments of the primitive condition of our race, should, in England at least, have almost totally neglected to popularize the Kalevala, or national poem of the Finns. Besides its fresh and simple beauty of style, its worth as a storehouse of every kind of primitive folklore, being as it is the production of an ervoke, a nation that has undergone no violent revolution in language or institutions the Kalevala has the peculiar interest of occupying a position between the two kinds of primitive poetry, the ballad and the epic. So much difficulty has been introduced into the study of the first developments of song, by confusing these distinct sorts of composition under the name of popular poetry, that it may be well, in writing of a poem which occupies a middle place between epic and ballad, to define what we mean by each. The author of our old English art of poesy begins his work with a statement which may serve as a text, poesy, says Putnam, writing in 1589, is more ancient than the artificial of the Greeks and Latines, coming by instinct of nature, and used by the savage and uncivil, 
who were before all science and civility. This is proved by certificate of merchants and travelers, who by late navigations have surveyed the whole world, and discovered large countries, and strange people, wild and savage, affirming that the American, the Perusine, and the very cannibal, do sing, and also say, their highest and holiest matters in certain rhyming versicles. Putnam is here referring to that instinct of primitive men, which compels them in all moments of high-wrought feeling, and on all solemn occasions, to give utterance to a kind of chant. 157A Such a chant is the song of Lamech, when he had slain a man to his wounding. So in the Norse sagas, Grady and Gunnar sing when they have anything particular to say, and so in the American the primitive fairy tales of all nations scraps of verse are introduced where emphasis is wanted. This craving for passionate expression takes a more formal shape in the lays which, among all primitive peoples, as among the modern Greeks today, 157b are sung at betrothals, funerals, and departures for distant lands. These songs have been collected in Scotland by Scott and Motherwell, their Danish counterparts have been translated by Mr. Pryor, in Greece, M. Foriel and Dr. Ulrichs, in Provence, Damas Arbad, in Italy, M. Niagara, in Serbia. Telge, in France, Gerard de Nerville have done for their separate countries what Scott did for the border. Professor Child, of Harvard, is publishing a beautiful critical collection of English folks leader, with all known variants from every country. A comparison of the collections proves that among all European lands the primitive versicles of the people were identical in tone, form, and incident. It is this kind of early expression of a people's life careless, abrupt, brief as was necessitated by the fact that they were assigned to the accompaniment of the dance that we call ballads. These are distinctly, and in every sense, popular poems, and nothing can cause greater confusion than to apply the same title, popular, to early epic poetry. Ballads are short, a long ballad, as Mr. Matthew Arnold has said, creeps and halts, a true epic, on the other hand, is long, and its tone is grand, noble, and sustained. Ballads are not artistic, while the form of the epic, whether we take the hexameter or the rougher lace of the French chansons digest, is full of conscious and admirable art. Lastly, popular ballads deal with vague characters, acting and living in vague places, while the characters of an epic are heroes of definite station, whose descendants are still in the land, whose home is a recognizable place, Ithaca, or Argos. Now, though these two kinds of early poetry the ballad, the song of the people, the epic, the song of the chiefs of the people, of the ruling race are distinct in kind, it does not follow that they have no connection, that the nobler may not have been developed out of the materials of the lower form of expression, and the value of the Kalevala is partly this, that it combines the continuity and unison of the epic with the simplicity and popularity of the ballad, and so forms a kind of link in the history of the development of poetry. This may become clearer as we proceed to explain the literary history of the Finnish national poem. Sixty years ago, it may be said, no one was aware that Finland possessed a national poem at all. Her people who claim affinity with the Magyars of Hungary, but are possibly a back wave of an earlier tide of population had remained untouched by foreign influences since their conquest by Sweden, and their somewhat lax and wholesale conversion to Christianity events which took place gradually between the middle of the 12th and the end of the 13th centuries. Under the rule of Sweden, the Finns were left to their quiet life and undisturbed imaginings. Among the forests and lakes of the region which they aptly called Puja, 
the end of things, while their educated classes took no very keen interest in the native poetry and mythology of their race. At length the annexation of Finland by Russia, in 1809, awakened national feeling, and stimulated research into the songs and customs which were the heirlooms of the people. It was the policy of Russia to encourage, rather than to check, this return on a distant past, and from the north of Norway to the slopes of the Altai. Ardent explorers sought out the fragments of unwritten early poetry. These runes, or runouts, were chiefly sung by old men called runoyas, to beguile the weariness of the long dark winters. The custom was for two champions to engage in a contest of memory, clasping each other's hands, and reciting in turn till he whose memory first gave in slackened his hold. The Kalevala contains an instance of this practice, where it is said that no one was so hardy as to clasp hands with Wainamoinen who is at once the Orpheus and the Prometheus of Finnish mythology. These runoyas, or rhapsodists, complain, of course, of the degeneracy of human memory, they notice how any foreign influence, in religion or politics, is destructive to the native songs of a race. As for the lays of old time, a thousand have been scattered to the wind, a thousand buried in the snow. As for those which the monks the Teutonic Knights swept away, and the prayer of the priest overwhelmed, a thousand tongues were not able to recount them. In spite of the losses thus caused, and in spite of the suspicious character of the Finns, which often made the task of collection a dangerous one, enough materials remain to furnish Dr. Longrot, the most noted explorer, with 35 runouts, or cantos. These were published in 1835, but later research produced the 15 cantos which make up the symmetrical 50 of the Kalevala. In the task of arranging and uniting these, Dr. Longroth played the part traditionally ascribed to the commission of Pisistratus in relation to the Iliad and Odyssey. Dr. Longroth is said to have handled with singular fidelity the materials which now come before us as one poem, not absolutely without a certain unity and continuous thread of narrative. It is this unity so faint compared with that of the Iliad and Odyssey which gives the Kalevala a claim to the title of epic. It cannot be doubted that. At whatever period the Homeric poems took shape in Greece, they were believed to record the feats of the supposed ancestors of existing families. Thus, for example, Pisistratus, as a descendant of the Nility, had an interest in securing certain parts, at least, of the Iliad and the Odyssey from oblivion. The same family pride embellished and preserved the epic poetry of early France. There were in France but three heroic houses, or jests, and three corresponding cycles of epopies. Now, in the Kalevala, there is no trace of the influence of family feeling, it was no one's peculiar care and pride to watch over the records of the fame of this or that hero. The poem begins with a cosmogony as wild as any Indian dream of creation, and the human characters who move in the story are shadowy inhabitants of no very definite lands, who no family claim as their forefathers. The very want of this idea of family and aristocratic pride gives the Kalevala a unique place among epics. It is emphatically an epic of the people, of that class whose life contains no element of progress, no break in continuity, which from age to age preserves, in solitude and close communion with nature, the earliest beliefs of grey antiquity. The Greek epic, on the other hand, has, as Ampreller points out, nothing to do with natural man but with an ideal world of heroes, with sons of the gods, with consecrated kings, heroes, elders, a kind of specific race of men, the people exist only as subsidiary to the great houses, 
as a mere background against which stand out the shining figures of heroes, as a race of beings fresh and rough from the hands of nature, with whom, and with whose concerns, the great houses and their bards have little concern. This feeling so universal in Greece, and in the feudal countries of medieval Europe, that there are two kinds of men, the golden and the brazen race, as Plato would have called them is absent, with all its results, in the Kalevala, among the Finns we find no trace of an aristocracy, there is scarcely a mention of kings, or priests, the heroes of the poem are really popular heroes, fishers, smiths, husbandmen, medicine men, or wizards, exaggerated shadows of the people, pursuing on a heroic scale, not war but the common daily business of primitive and peaceful men, in recording their adventures, the Kalevala, like the shield of Achilles, reflects all the life of a race, the feasts, the funerals, the rites of seed time and harvest of marriage and death, the hymn, and the magical incantation, were this all, the epic would only have the value of an exhaustive collection of the popular ballads which, as we have seen, are a poetical record of the intenser moments in the existence of unsophisticated tribes, but the Kalevala is distinguished from such a collection, by presenting the ballads as they are produced by the events of a continuous narrative, and thus it takes a distinct place between the aristocratic epics of Greece, or of the Franks, and the scattered songs which have been collected in Scotland, Sweden, Denmark, Greece, and Italy, besides the interest of its unique position as a popular epic. The Kalevala is very valuable, both for its literary beauties and for the confused mass of folklore which it contains. Here old cosmogonies, attempts of man to represent to himself the beginning of things, are mingled with the same wild imaginings as are found everywhere in the shape of fairy tales. We are hurried from an account of the mystic egg of creation, to a hymn like that of the Embarval brothers, to a strangely familiar scrap of a nursery story to an incident which we remember as occurring in almost identical words in a Scotch ballad, we are among a people which endows everything with human characters and life, which is in familiar relations with birds, and beasts, and even with rocks and plants, ravens and wolves and fishes of the sea, Sunday moon, and stars, are kindly or churlish, drops of blood fine speech, man and maid change to snake or swan and resume their forms, ships have magic powers, like the ships of the Phaeacians, then there is the honest confusion of every stage of religious development, we find a supreme God, delighting in righteousness, Yuko, the lord of the vault of air, who stands apart from men, and sends his son, Wainamoinen, to be their teacher in music and agriculture, across this faith comes a religion of petrified abstractions like those of the Roman pantheon, there are gods of color, a goddess of weaving, a goddess of man's blood, besides elemental spirits of woods and waters, and the manes of the dead. Meanwhile, the working faith of the people is the belief in magic generally a sign of the lower culture. It is supposed that the knowledge of certain magic words gives power over the elemental bodies which obey them. It is held that the will of a distant sorcerer can cross the lakes and plains like the breath of a fantastic frost, with power to change an enemy to ice or stone. Traces remain of the wordership of animals. There is a hymn to the bear, a dance like the bear dance of the American Indians, and another hymn tells of the birth and power of the serpent. Across all, and closing all, comes a hostile account of the origin of Christianity the end of joy and music. How primitive was the condition of the authors of this medley of beliefs is best proved by the survival of the custom called exogamy. 164a This custom, which is not peculiar to the Finns, 
but is probably a universal note of early society, prohibits marriage between members of the same tribe. Consequently, the main action, such as the island of the Kalevala turns on the efforts made by the men of Kaliga to obtain brides from the hostile tribe of Kaja. 164b Further proof of ancient origin is to be found in what is the great literary beauty of the poem its pure spontaneity and simplicity. It is the production of an intensely imaginative race, to which song came as the most natural expression of joy and sorrow, terror or triumph a class which lay near to nature's secret, and was not out of sympathy with the wild kin of woods and waters. These songs, says the prelude, were found by the wayside and gathered in the depths of the copses, blown from the branches of the forest, and culled among the plumes of the pine trees. These lays came to me as I followed the flocks, in a land of meadows honey-sweet, and of golden hills. The cold has spoken to me, and the rain has told me her runes, the winds of heaven, the waves of the sea, have spoken and sung to me, the wild birds have taught me. The music of many waters has been my master, the meter in which the epic is chanted resembles to an English ear, that of Mr. Longfellow's Hiawatha there is assonance rather than rhyme, and a very musical effect is produced by the liquid character of the language, and by the frequent alliterations. This rough outline of the main characteristics of the Kalevala we shall now try to fill up with an abstract of its contents. The poem is longer than the Iliad, and much of interest must necessarily be omitted, but it is only through such an abstract that any idea can be given of the sort of unity which does prevail amid the most utter discrepancy. In the first place, what is to be understood by the word Kalevala? The affix love signifies abode. Thus, Tuonla is the abode of Tuoni, the god of the lower world, and as Kaliva means heroic, magnificent. Kalevala is the home of heroes. The poem is the record of the adventures of the people of Kalevala of their strife with the men of Pojola. The place of the world's end, we may fancy two old runoyas, or singers, clasping hands on one of the first nights of the Finnish winter, and beginning what probably has never been accomplished the attempt to work through the Kalevala before the return of summer. They commence a biovo, or, rather, before the ag. First is chanted the birth of Wainamoinen, the benefactor and teacher of men. He is the son of Luanadar, the daughter of nature who answers to the first woman of the Iroquois cosmogony, beneath the breath and touch of wind and tide. She conceived a child, but nine ages of man passed before his birth, while the mother floated on the formless and the multiform waters. Then Yuko, the supreme god, sent an eagle, which laid her eggs in the maiden's bosom, and from these eggs grew earth and sky, sun and moon, star and cloud. Then was Wainamoinen born on the waters, and reached a barren land and gazed on the new heavens and the new earth. There he sowed the grain that is the bread of man, chanting the hymn used at seed time, calling on the mother earth to make the green herb spring, and on Yuko to send clouds and rain. So the corn sprang, and the golden cuckoo which in Finland plays the part of the popinjay in Scotch ballads, or of the three golden birds in Greek folk songs came with his congratulations. In regard to the epithet golden, it may be observed that gold and silver, in the Finnish epic, are lavished on the commonest objects of daily life. This is a universal note of primitive poetry, and is not a peculiar Finnish idiom, as M. Lizom Duke supposes, nor, as Mr. Tozer seems to think, in his account of Romaic ballads, a trace of Oriental influence among the modern Greeks. It is common to all the ballads of Europe, as M. Empire has pointed out, and may be observed in the Chanson de Roland, and in Homer, while the corn ripened, 
Wainamoinen rested from his labors, and took the task of Orpheus. He sang, says the Kalevala, of the origin of things, of the mysteries hidden from babes, that none may attain to in this sad life. In the hours of these perishable days, the fame of the Ranoia's singing excited jealousy in the breast of one of the men around him, of whose origin the Kalevala gives no account. This man, Jukantainen, provoked him to a trial of song, boasting, like Empedocles, or like one of the old Celtic bards, that he had been all things, when the earth was made I was there, when space was enrolled I launched the sun on his way, then was Wainamoinen wroth, and by the force of his enchantment he rooted Jukantainen to the ground, and suffered him not to go free without promising him the hand of his sister Aino, the mother was delighted, but the girl wept that she must now cover her long locks, her curls, her glory, and be the wife of the old imperturbable Wainamoinen. It is in vain that her mother offers her dainty food and rich dresses, she flees from home, and wanders till she meets three maidens bathing, and joins them, and is drowned, singing a sad song, God, never may my sister come to bathe in the sea water, for the drops of the sea are the drops of my blood. This wild idea occurs in the Romaic ballad, Greek, where a drop of blood on the lips of the drowned girl tinges all the waters of the world. To return to the fate of Aino, a swift hair runs as in the Zulu legend of the origin of death with the tale of sorrow to the maiden's mother, and from the mother's tears flow rivers of water, and barren are isles with golden hills where golden birds make melody. As for the old, the imperturbable Ranoia, he loses his claim to the latter title, he is filled with sorrow and searches through all the elements for his lost bride. At length he catches a fish which is unknown to him, who, like Ellis, knew the depths of all the seas. The strange fish slips from his hands. A tress of hair, of drowned maiden's hair, floats for a moment on the foam, and too late he recognizes that there was never salmon yet that shone so fair. Above the nets at sea, his lost bride has been within his reach, and now is doubly lost to him. Suddenly the waves are cloven asunder, and the mother of nature and of Wainamoinen appears, to comfort her son, like Thetis from the deep, she bids him go and seek, in the land of Pojola, a bride alien to his race, after many a wild adventure, Wainamoinen reaches Pojola and is kindly entreated by Lautri, the mother of the maiden of the land, but he grows homesick, and complains, almost in Dante's words, of the bitter bread of exile. Lautry will only grant him her daughter's hand on condition that he gives her a sampo. A sampo is a mysterious engine that grinds meal, salt, and money. In fact, it is the mill in the well-known fairy tale. Why the sea is salt. Wainamoinen cannot fashion this mill himself. He must seek aid at home from Ilmarinen, the smith who forged the iron vault of hollow heaven. As the hero returns to Kalevala, he meets the Lady of the Rainbow, seated on the arch of the sky. Weaving the golden thread, she promises to be his, if he will accomplish certain tasks, and in the course of those he wounds himself with an axe. The wound can only be healed by one who knows the mystic words that hold the secret of the birth of iron, the legend of this evil birth, how iron grew from.